Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, readers and listeners, this is the PRC PRC show, but it's actually Reading Parting the Waters, episode 006. And as we have been doing, we are reading Taylor Branch's Parting the Waters, American the King Years, with two 40-year-old dads, uh, two white dads from Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. We're going through this book. And I bring that up because this chapter, chapter 7, we're talking about uh, the chapter is The Quickening, and we are going to get into some student activism. And I consider myself a student activist. I was an active student at the University of Pittsburgh, and I believe Gabe was somewhat of a student activist. And I still kind of feel that in my ethos. Um, just before... Gabe, say hello. Hi. Hi. Me too. We're recording this uh, on a Steeler playoff Sunday, December, the January... Uh, January, um, what is it, 16th, 15th? and um, 15th was yesterday because it was Dr. King's actual birthday. Yes, that's right. January 15th is his birthday. Happy Tomorrow birthday. is MLK Day. Observed. I was a student activist. I did stuff with um, every single cause, basically. The main things I did was living wage campaign, same-sex domestic partner benefits, and the war started to come, so it was against the war in Afghanistan, the anti-war in Iraq. Did stuff with closing the School of the Americas, which isn't really student activist stuff, but I did organize some things there. Justice for janitors. They'd have contract fights. I did stuff to protect old-growth forests, meaning I showed up at some demonstrations. I did some anti-death penalty stuff. I did various just showing up. Just, hey, I'm in school. I have free time. Let's get in every single cause. How about yourself? I feel like I was a little bit of a late bloomer as a student activist in that my first couple of years at university, I was really interested in politics, but I was mainly goofing around and participating in clubs and chasing girls and doing non-serious things. And it was really um, at the end of my junior year and then as a senior that I got involved in organizing. Okay students to support the labor movement and workers fights in washington dc where i was going to school did this chapter resonate with you a little bit with these students oh i love the students yes totally inspiring yes so um what we're going to learn in this chapter is uh what is the student Nonviolent coordinating committee which is known as snick um we're going to learn what a sit-in is we're going to learn what mayor in the south Tennessee actually comes across as good. Maybe me and Gabe can agree to disagree. We'll find out. Um, King's legal troubles. Who I think is the best looking civil rights activist and who also is a fearless unsung hero. Um, And what celebrity introduces JFK to MLK. So it's we left off with King leaving Dexter. He's in going to Atlanta and Branch gives us a little teaser about uh, what's happening in Woolworths in North Carolina. So Greensboro, North Carolina, there is a Woolworths sit-in. Have you ever been to a Woolworths, Gabe? I don't think I have. I think I might have been to one years ago, but I, it could have been a Walmart. There was a one out in, you know. The, anyways, so sit-ins were not new. They occurred in 16 other cities, and few of them made the news. And what is a sit-in? It's... It's when people are sitting in these lunch counters where they're not supposed to be black people and they're withstanding abuse. Branch says, and this is where I'm going to take issue with him, but not really because he gives us enough evidence to kind of counter this. But he's sort of true. Okay, he says these are spontaneous and there was a lack of planning. But was there? 
Yes and no. So it starts with four students at this Woolworths in Greensboro. Um, supposedly they had no goals or limitations. They they did not expect the white managers to be, as Branch says, floundering in confusion and embarrassment. This turned the students' fear into elation, like, oh, wait, this is kind of working. Um, and the David Garrow book starts this chapter off a little better. Um, and I have a guest reader that I want to have just read the first part of his book to really summarize it for us. So here we go. Hold on. On February 1st, 1960, four young black men who were students at North Carolina A&T College sat down at the lunch counter in a Greensboro F.W. Woolworth store and refused to leave when they were denied service. Only white patrons were served at the counter. Word of their acts spread among fellow students, and the next wave, the next day, more than two dozen occupied the lunch counter, doing schoolwork when they also were refused service. Over the following four days, the numbers grew larger and larger. A few white participants joined in, while other whites heckled the protesters. The effort spread to other Greensboro lunch counters until, by the end of the week, all such facilities were closed. With those spontaneous actions, the sit-ins began. Okay, what did you think of that guy's voice, by the way? pretty deep paul yeah that was actually me i just changed my voice so that's a little summary of how it kind of starts um the spontaneity and the open-endedness of the first greensboro sit-in flashed through a network of activists who had been groping towards the same goal is what branch writes um on the first night they contacted the naacp lawyer floyd mckissick and a youth council leader douglas moore he's the guy that branch mentions of the ice cream parlor sit-ins and I just want to do a little more from Garrow. By Monday, February 8th, the sit-in protest had spread to Durham and Winston-Salem. Within the following two days, they spread to Charlotte, Riley, Fayetteville, and Elizabeth City. By the end of the week, they had reached Norfolk and Portsmouth, Virginia, and Rock Hill, South Carolina. With no prompting from any of the existing <laughs> civil rights organizations or black adult okay. leadership, a new stage in the freedom struggle had been launched. Okay, yeah, this this guy's got a really deep voice. Sorry. So, first day, there's four. By the third day, there's 85. Klansmen and youth gang members crowded into stores to menace these protesters. Managers didn't know what to do, but were, you know, kind of being polite. Fred Shuttlesworth from Atlanta comes into town to preach and tells Ella Baker, hey, look, this is happening. We got to get Martin up here. This is going to shake up the world. And it sort of did. And as the uh, speaker said, it goes to all these other cities caught like wildfire. And then our old friend James Lawson. Um, now here's where Branch, we're moving over to Nashville. Um, As the sit-in spread across North Carolina and into other southeastern states, several young adult activists moved to the fore. In Dorham, Reverend Douglas E. Moore, a young minister who had been attending SCLC meetings for two years, began calling friends in other cities, including Reverend James M. Lawson in Nashville. Lawson and other young black activists in Nashville had been discussing nonviolent protests and preparing for just such an initiative. The technique itself was not original in Greensboro. Other black protesters had employed it in 1957 and 1958 in Oklahoma and Kansas, though with little press coverage. As the phone calls and other contacts spread, so did the sit-ins. By February 13th, protests had begun in Nashville and Tallahassee, and a New York staff member of the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, Gordon Carey, was dispatched to aid the various North Carolina efforts. 
All right, so our old friend James Lawson presided over the first mass meeting of a sit-in movement. There's 500 volunteers gathered in Nashville at this First Baptist Church. Why are all Baptist churches called the First Baptist? Because that seems like to be the case in every city. I think whichever Baptist church is built first gets to be called the First Baptist Church. But how can they all be the first? Because they're in, I don't think you have multiple First Baptist churches within the same town. With 75 veterans of the nonviolent workshops, uh, part of this, these workshops, Lawson, believe it or not, argued for a delay saying, you know, we don't have enough training. The students were like, nope, uh, we're not, this is, you know, we want to go for it. He's like, listen, this is not a game. People will go to jail and we need to raise funds. We need to get lawyers involved and all that stuff. But um, the students were like, no, let's do this. So Lawson gave a crash course in nonviolence late into the night and... I highly recommend Eyes on the Prize because they show a little bit of some video footage of him training people and like students being harassed, like mock, like role plays. So he trained someone how to avoid loitering laws, move to and from lunch counters and orderly shifts, how to fill the seats of students who needed to go to the bathroom, even how to dress. So the plan was you dress in women, stockings and heels, and men wear coats and ties. Why this is important. Because, to me, Gabe, this is arguing against a little bit of the spontaneity stuff. And I'm going to let you speak in a minute because I know I'm filibustering. But there's this concept that people were upset, they all sat down, and then things occurred. And, like, you know, society's like, oh, yes, like, this was just an innate thing in their bones where they just did it. There's clear demonstration of training, people thinking about this. There was a spontaneity where, like, people felt compelled to do this. But... You know, we're kind of talking about how the sausage is made here. There was a lot of thought. Again, of course, bravery and courage. But um, this wasn't just some... Uh, you get what I'm saying? I do. And I think that you're partly right here. And I, I like that you want to lift up and shine a light on the, the craft and the training. That's my favorite part. That's all I want to talk about with this book. <laughs> like, the other ahead. part of that and the part that sort of got my heart beating, pumping uh, with excitement when I was reading that and when I was underlining those passages about the crash course is that Lawson is responding to a level of engagement that he was not prepared for and which he actually thinks is uh, unwise, mm -hmm. but he's prepared to meet the moment. Right, right. And it's one of the things that makes him so great is that he's the kind of intellectual who's prepared to jump into the moment. He, he's not going to try to shut it down. I mean, throughout this book, there are lots of examples of different kind of leaders, pastors, uh, heads of universities, um, lawyers who are trying to channel energy away from conflict, who are trying to mitigate a situation, to trying to defuse it, sometimes for good reasons. But Lawson seems like the sort of person who's always figuring out the way, certainly to bring his skill and understanding, but he wants to escalate. He wants to make things clear and sharp and into conflict. Yes. And these young people are taking steps faster than they can be trained. He's, he's, he's got to figure out quickly how to help a group of people take an action but then to start thinking about how can we make a, a, a sort of a cadre of people that can train more people. 
He is becoming my favorite character in this whole thing. He's surpassing um, Robinson, as you know, one of my faves. But uh, I love this guy, and I the more we read about him, I, he's still alive, by the way. He's 93 years old. I want to meet him. <laughs> he is so cool, and I looked at his like Wikipedia today. I knew vaguely about him, but this guy, he almost ellipses King in some respects with... You'll, you'll find out. Okay. So in Nashville the next morning, Lawson's logistical plan works out smoothly. Church cars travel between First Baptist Church and Nashville's four other Negro colleges, uh, Fisk, Tennessee State, Meharry Medical, and the Baptist um, Eminary. Okay. Again, planning... All this stuff, not just people doing it on their own. Uh, White Na- uh, Branch writes, White Nashville woke to a kind of invasion force of rows of neatly dressed Negro college students filled into the downtown stores to wait for food service. This is just so cool. So it's working. Um, they were disciplined. They, they were disciplined, you know. Uh, Lawson called King and Baker and Doug Moore by the end of February. These sit-in campaigns were underway in 31 um, other southern cities across eight states. And then Branch says that news is not really getting put forward in the white or black media because student antics are transient and people don't respect students. Or it's, they just, uh, that's just a bunch of, you know, um, who cares? Which I thought was kind of interesting, um, given that the nature of how many this was early on. So where's King? Again, this is 1960, early. He's trying to have some quiet time in Atlanta at Ebenezer. There is a little anxiety for him because there's rumors that the Alabama officials are going to go after him for back taxes. So he gets a legal team together. He does go to this rally in North Carolina, and King's words are, he's excited about these students. He says, the underlying philosophies of segregation are diametrically opposed to democracy and Christianity, and all the dialectics of all the logicians in the world cannot make them lie down together. What is fresh, what is new in your fight is the fact that it was initiated, led, and sustained by students. What is new is the American students have come of age. You now take your honored places in the world's struggle for freedom. Nice. Yes. And I, I like how, how Branch acknowledges how King is treating them as, as peers, as, as the heroes that they are. He's not one of the people who is condescending to them. I mean, partly because he's barely older than, than they are. But he, I think Branch identifies that he's recognizing uh, an, a nonviolent, proactive, if you will, sort of offensive strategy here, which he both admires because it's so brave, but also because strategically it's so vital and important. And he's contrasting it with the NAACP leaders and the SCLC preachers who are kind of like, eh, they're just not excited about this. The NAACP initially doesn't even... Um, defend the first students who are arrested. And again, Branch is like, gives this very respectful tone and is really excited about it. Um, Branch goes on to write that he was, you know, this whole thing where he was, we talked about India, he was seeking nonviolence confrontation and traveled all the way to India to learn about nonviolence and think about it. But it's these students that were actually practicing it. He didn't have to go all the way around the world to see it. These students are doing it. And it's James Lawson. His, as I said before, is kind of eclipsing King, maybe that's the wrong term, with his leadership. And he's like hardcore nonviolence. He's like, we're doing this now. I don't think he has a family at the time, though. I'm not sure. I don't know if that factors in. But um, I want to meet Lawson. Lawson, Lawson, perhaps even more so than, than Rustin, is a real 
uh, intellectual giant of this nonviolent struggle movement. Born in Uniontown, PA, by the way. That's probably why. <laughs> About an hour uh, southeast of Pittsburgh. So King is not ready to join them, but he's fueled but he's fueled by their fire, I guess, so to speak. Um, and Lawson has this fill up the jails mentality. So King gets arrested the day after the speech for perjury for back taxes. This was unheard of of a citizen in Alabama history to be prosecuted for felony tax evasion. And this is why I really hate Governor Patterson. We, we talked about this before, but he's one of these guys that later on he votes for Obama. But what does he do here? He says like, hey, well, whatever. If you dance, you got to pay the fiddler, MLK. You got to go to jail. Too bad. And why I really hate him and I think it's worse that he did this is I don't think in his bones he's like a true bigot. He's just when forced with a decision or like he didn't stand up. He's just a jerk. Whatever. Well, we'll talk more about this when we get to. Chapter nine. Yeah. But maybe he's the, big, the use know. of the state and all of its organs yes. to crush dissent yeah. is an incredibly important part of the story. And making King the the first person in the history of the state of Alabama to be charged with felony tax evasion. And this also stains this is like a big fear of King because you have a history of whatever world history of like corrupt preachers, corrupt uh, a sure. priest. And so now he has this, oh, man, I'm going to fit the mold of a lying, greedy sham preacher making money off of this movement, which is not him at all. Um, meanwhile, in Nashville, Lawson is in a his group completes the second week of sit ins, February 20. Go ahead. Let's just say something just really hopefully every listener will get this. But the idea that. You can't stop someone in the streets with politics or and that you turn to prosecuting them uh, on trumped up charges of, of tax evasion is such a profound misuse of the democratic state. It, it, it's a, a, a sort of along the lines of using psychiatry in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. to imprison uh, dissidents. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I think an example of the corruption of power. On a really profound scale. Sure. Oh, for, uh, no question. Um, so John Lewis is also in Nashville. He's with uh, Lawson. And he comes up with a do's and don'ts guide for the, you know, the sit-ins. And he mimeographs a flyer that says, that people p- put in their pocket, says, remember the teachings of Jesus, Gandhi, Thoreau, and Martin Luther King Jr. Um Kids carry these sheets as white teenagers yelled at them, calling them the N-word and swearing at them. And police are watching this. They're throwing rocks at them, the the white kids, hitting them, sticks, lighted cigarettes before moving to arrest 75 uh, black students and five white sympathizers. To the applause, shamefully, of several hundred white onlookers, John Lewis is freaked out again because it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to jail. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is crazy. And then he just kind of has a feeling like, no, this is the right thing. And he is going to jail for justice, as Ann Feeney, we got to play that song at some point, says. Um, so we're still in Nashville. Diane Nash, who's one of the student leaders who Branch says is more articulate. And if you really need to watch Eyes on the Prize because she shines through there and she's easy on the eyes. So there you go. <laughs> but she, I mean, she's just a young person. She's so articulate. She's so fearless. Um, she exhibits a clear le- leadership, uh, a firm commitment to the cause. And 
you'll see in the video of Eyes on the Prize how she challenges the mayor. Anyways, she is one of those arrested with Lewis and speaks in court. This is like a made-for-movie scene. I don't know if you remember this game, but... So all the students are kind of getting arraigned. Everyone's appearing before the judge. This is like a tearjerker moment. You're just like, yes. So everyone's appearing before the judge and paying their fines and leaving. And she says, we feel that if we pay these fines... Now, a lot of people already have paid their fines. They're kind of like walking out or I don't know how the scene goes. We feel if we pay these fines, we would be contributing to and supporting the injustice and immoral practices that have been performed in the arrest and conviction of the defendants. I'm not paying the fine. So her not paying the fine means you got to go back to jail. So her and 14 others do not pay the fine, go back to jail. And then the 60 people that did say, you know what? I'm following Diane Nash and they go back to jail. And so they went back and joined them in jail to not pay the fine. And this causes a crisis. I mean, this is a lot of people going to jail, right? Um, I just want to put a pin in this, talk about agents of change, great, great men of history, great women of history. This like little single act really changed things. And this is, she's kind of, to me, an unsung hero of, uh, you don't hear about the Diane Nash's of the world. She grows in stature in, in the pages of, of these chapters. And I really wish there could be more focus on, on what she did. We'll come, come to her, yep. her challenging the mayor later. But so, I mean, just, just to pause, there's all these other students doing it, like 60 people go through. None of them else spoke up, not that they're bad or whatever, like, but just to the courage. I mean, I could I would be so freaking nervous. I'd be stuttering. The courage to do that to me is like, you know, fourth quarter, two minutes left in the, fourth, the football game. Like like this, this the, the whale or he uses the word intrepid. You know, it's just awesome. And it's taking the vision of Lawson and making it reality in an organizing moment in a confrontation that remember how uh, Rustin um, coaches Nixon to don't wait for the cops to come get you go and turn yourself in and we'll flip the moment right so Lawson is taking that same thinking that kind of nonviolent organizing jujitsu and he's taking it to a whole nother level we're gonna go to jail not pay bail right but it takes Nash to lead the students to make it happen and James Bevel, who I think he ends up marrying uh, Diane Nash. Uh, I could be wrong about that. He He's moved by this. I don't know if we talked about him before. He was the one doing the bathroom soliloquies, a big preacher. He's like, I'm going to join the next wave. Mayor West says he's going to let them out of jail if they stop demonstrations. And he's going to create a biracial committee to make recommendations. And this is viewed as a victory. Uh, the, the people are pretty feeling good about this. Then Lawson is expelled from Vanderbilt, which is in Nashville. All the teachers resign in protest. There's there's like some demonstrations, I believe. And then he's reinstated. Power of a union. Solidarity. Um, then again, fearless Diane Nash takes a group to the Greyhound station. I don't think it's a ton of people, a handful, 12, 20. Essentially integrates it with no issues, by the way. Um, and there's no issues. It's just like, okay, that's done. Um, Branch describes like there's this pattern of early sit-ins that was established where there's constant surprises, all-night meetings, serial victories, setbacks with the elders of both races often on the defensive and against their young. Um, Again, this is all student-led. I don't know. He doesn't mention this, but part of me wonders if this would have occurred in Mississippi if it would have been the same because it is Tennessee, which is a southern state. Um, but it is interesting how the students are having this success to me. Well, 
I'm not an, an expert on Tennessee, yeah. right? But it seems like that this is happening in Nashville is important because it's a relatively big city. It's relatively developed. There are a number of, of colleges there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, right, right. Um, it give, it the, lends for a lot of foot soldiers and support. Right. That this It's it's a little bit like Atlanta in that sense. That it, this is a place where young, high potential, probably rel, relatively, uh, in the context of the black community, middle class uh, students are going to become professionals. And they're also in the milieu of Lawson, so they're engaged in this uh, strategic and spiritual and political discussion. And they're all together in a place where they can take action in a city with an economy that's complicated enough that uh, I think the politics are not uh, as stark. As, as Alabama? As, as in Mississippi. Or Al- yeah. Well, let's say um, Montgomery is... is um, maybe a, a relatively more moderate exception in Alabama, right? I think we're going to draw a, a difference between Montgomery and Birmingham yeah. later. Like, Birmingham is just a hard town yeah. in a way that Montgomery is not quite as ruthless Nashville just, to me, seems a little more progressive or a little bit more open. So uh, I I think that's correct. Probably because also the students, too. Like, I, there's all the universities. I, I think I think that's right. And we, we, we were talking... Um, Earlier about um, Senator Kefauver mm-hmm. and Senator Gore, that there can be uh, regular Democratic moderates uh, who are prepared to take some liberal positions on civil rights, breaking with the rest of um, the, the the Southern Dixiecrats. So, I'm again, I don't feel like I'm yeah. any kind of expert on mid-century. Tennessee politics. Shame on you. So there's another. Let's go back to Alabama, though, because on February 25th, 1960, Lee, um, Bernard Lee. Oh, my God. He's like Kings. He becomes his like assistant. He's a student activist. He leads 35 students to the state capitol, attempts to order food. It's the whole like sit in a segregation cafeteria. And they get um, I don't know if arrested or exposed. What ends up happening is the Alabama Governor Patterson again responded by threatening to withhold funding from the state of Alabama unless the president, Trenholm, expelled Lee and his fellow protesters. And guess what happened? The president complied. And um, this guy gets kicked out of school, Lee. It's another nice example of the, the state. The, exactly. The, the muscle flexing of the, the, the white supremacist state. And there's 4,000 people, like, you know, marching outside the Capitol. Um, but, but it doesn't really do much to get any results there. Um, by March, 40 cities experienced students' demonstrations. Violence against these students is happening. We're not commenting. We haven't commented on that yet, but Branch makes a comment where at one point a woman's head is cracked with like a baseball bat that you can hear half a block away. So it's not just like people demonstrating and they're not getting injured. Now let's turn to Wyatt T. Walker. Branch kind of paints this guy as kind of an ass, but he's also good, I guess. I mean, he ends up being the chief of staff for MLK. He's the one that takes over, essentially, Baker's spot, Ella Baker, who gets short shrifted by... Once again. The big time. And in fact, I'm going to do a little diatribe here. We're 300 pages into the book. And it's clear that we're just not going to get a nice bio that we get from some of the other characters. We're going to get a nice one of uh, Bob Moses coming up. But um, it kind of upsets me because 
there's some clear stuff where he also admits of her organizing when we can talk about SNCC in a second. Um, so anyways, he's a preacher. He's charismatic. He's a young, this is how Branch says, he's a young red who joins the Young Communist League. He wrote about a Soviet-style five-year plan for the U.S. economy when he was in high school. He dreamed out carrying technically engineered uh, assassinations against leading segregationists in his youth. In college, he acquired dark-rimmed glasses and gave his face the look of a brooding Trotskyite. This guy annoys, like that cosplay annoys me. Like he's dressing up as like a, you know, wear whatever. No single obsession could contain his ambitions. And he boasted, I mean, maybe he was a youth, whatever. He boasted uh, to his peers that while a revolutionary, he would make a million dollars along the way. Um, so that's a little bio on him. He ends up becoming the SL, SCLC executive. Uh, it, and then there's some that's stuff. a lot of ambition trying to uh, make a <laughs> communist revolution and, and become be, a millionaire, be, well, millionaire hey, at the same time. Levin said to pretty successful with his car dealerships, I guess. Um, there's some... There's some stuff about uh, King's legal defense and one of the lawyers, I think my daughter might be screaming in the background, but I can assure you there's another parent that's taking care of her. Um, there's this lawyer, Blanton, who's greedy and, uh, you know, Levinson is kind of like saying, this is a shame that these guys are trying to milk you. Brief intermission here because my kids interrupted the show. Be back in a second. Okay, uh, the New York Committee to Defend Martin Luther King is run by Rustin. It pays for a full-page ad in the New York Times. And then Governor Patterson sues Times for libel, even though I don't even think he's mentioned in it. And it becomes like this big like landmark case that goes to the Supreme Court, which we'll mention later. At the same time, around a little earlier than this, Highlander, again, the power of the state, the Tennessee, uh, whatever, attorney general, whoever, legal authorities go after Highlander Folk School. They shut it down because they have like some bottles of beer after some like basically you know oh not selling not not having a liquor license okay now we're gonna go to april 15th any comments gabe before i go into snick i just threw a bunch of crap out there well it's uh always uh remarkable and chilling to see the creativity of uh lawyers and cops who keep power where it is right Disgusting. April 15th, SNCC is formed. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was... <laughs> the, the students are revolting. Oh, you hear a baby in the background. Let's see here. All right. Family drama here. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was formed in April of 1960 at a conference at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. Guess who went to Shaw University, Gabe, who is not mentioned in Branch's book unless you missed saw this? Tell me. Ella Baker. There you go. We're we're, oh. we're still looking, we're still waiting for his uh, <laughs> biographical notes. Oh, this this is where I'm like getting. I I love uh, Taylor Branch. It's a great book, but it's like, come on. So the Shaw University, North Carolina, attended by 126 student delegates from 58 sit-in centers in 12 states from 19 colleges. Um, and among those attending were Diane Nash, Marion Barry, John Lewis. Um, uh, 
Stokely Carmichael actually is there. We don't hear about him yet. And MLK is invited to. Um, and it was organized by Ella Baker. She put the thing together. And she was a critic of what she perceived as like King's top-down leadership at the SCLC. And kind of had this, you know, strong people don't need strong leaders, she told the young activist, speaking to the student's own experience of protest organization. It was Baker's vision that kind of appeared to uh, prevail. And SNCC, there was some thought that it could be maybe a wing of SCLC, but the youth was like, no. And King, to his credit, was like, that's fine. Um, uh, it steered an independent course that sought to channel the students' program through the organizers out in the field rather than through a national office in Atlanta. Um, let me go. This is where you get this like new left, I'm going to call it, participatory democracy idea that wasn't really around yet, I guess. You know, avoiding hierarchy, sought to reach decisions by consensus, super long meetings where everyone had to like kind of agree consensus, which is a good and a bad thing. Um, group meetings convened. Like, no, you just it almost hold you hostage, it sounds like. Um, but given that, like, people could die from some of these decisions, you could, I guess, respect it. And this is, you know, jail, no bail was the stand of SNCC. So at this meeting at Shaw University, Lawson says, in one of the meetings, Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Love goes to the extreme. It remains loving and forgiving even in the midst of hostility. It matches the, capac the capacity of evil to inflict suffering with an even more enduring capacity to absorb evil, all the while persisting in love. Then he said, most of us will be grandparents before we can lead normal lives. Called the NAACP too conservative, called the NAACP magazine for the black bourgeoisie and just raising funds and doing lawsuits. He, you know, this was kind of a, uh, I don't want to say, I guess controversial, but oh, wow, this guy's taking down sacred cows type of deal. Um, well, it's a perfect speech for uh power to the people youth, lifting the taboo of that youth movement yeah he's inculcating them in the the theory of nonviolent struggle which he's been studying for a long time but at the same time he's charging them with a special mission and he's giving them this sort of mantle of radical action and you got to have you got to have mm -hmm. some, something to, to critique as part of that story yeah. i think the other point you made about King sort of acknowledging and even supporting the idea of SNCC as a separate organization is, I think, a pretty shrewd choice for lots of reasons. I mean, there are uh, there's plenty of drama in the history of politics, especially politics of the left, between uh, youth organizations and their their parent structures, right? The the Students for a Democratic Society uh, starts out, for example, as the youth wing of the League for Industrial Democracy attached to the, the, the Socialist Party. And there's intense conflict uh, which develops there before SDS goes its separate way. And so King, uh, whether simply out of understanding the, the spirit of the moment or because he's farsighted, I don't know, sidesteps that. And it seems that he never wants to be in power. Like, that's 
I don't know if Branch is being charitable to King, but he doesn't want to consolidate power or be in charge, I, even I, though he I, kind of I, is. I disagree. I mean, we we have some really explicit examples of him. Oh, you mean a, like the a, the church? I, yeah, authority. I just I thought about that. There, and you know. we know that he has. Um, uh, and later, when he interacts with with Moses, we 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 learn about Moses. We we sort of we're, we're reminded of his idea, which is based in theology about the imp- importance of the pastor as leader. But in this moment, well, in this I, moment, I, I, I think yeah. in, the, in the politics of a forming youth movement, I think he he perhaps just has the insight yeah. that the, sort of the groups of pastors that he has to work with are not going to be able to harness these students. Okay, and the students are not going to pull. He's seeing that it's not going to because I, what I, I think always, he just sees a better way to do the it. The way Branch writes is that. Um, during the meeting, there's tensions between King and Baker regarding how to handle the students, um, even how to travel to D.C. for the upcoming protest. And some students are astonished to see, you know, a woman contradicting King, which is a little different point than we we're just talking about. But um, the one S.C. Snick historian wrote that, uh, you know, Baker smashed King's plan to dominate the students at the Shaw Conference. So maybe that contradicts what I was saying, that it was just King's own insight and maybe... Baker sort of elbowed her way to say, we're letting these students do this, okay? Yeah. These students are going to lead this organization, and Lawson and, and I are kind of helping shepherd it along, and he doesn't... It, it just seems like he's not pushing against, no, we need to incorporate them into the SCLC. They need to be part of us. There's not a big fight over that. Right. I mean, Br- Branch doesn't seem to buy the history that that would say King came to dominate them, King is defeated, you know, Point for Baker, you know, zero on the scoreboard yeah, for, for yeah. King. It doesn't seem like that's how it goes down, at least according to to Branch. It, I think that the King seems to, while while he's disagreeing with Baker uh, about some, he's got a good relationship things. with Lawson too, right? Right. So. I think he has enormous respect for Lawson, and I think he just has. We already know that he uh, admires and salutes what the students are doing. That. Um, Branch has sort of already highlighted that he recognized the potential of this. And I think, you know, in, in, in the same way that he doesn't want the SCLC to be yoked to the NAACP, NAACP he, he may simply see this and say, let's, um, let's assume that this should have a somewhat different structure. Um, Branch writes that it was Baker who tried to smooth over Lawson's uh, NAACP criticism. Lawson was an extreme communalist, believed that leadership hierarchies were invidious similar to nature to racial caste systems against which they were struggling similar to the nature of the racial yeah um so lawson and moore joined the sclc and king was floored and he's like yeah we want to join we'll be we'll uproot our lives and go to atlanta and become like staff members um we'll see how that doesn't turn out well but back in atlanta king's five lawyers are like hey man this doesn't look great I don't know if we're going to win this case. And there's one uh, lawyer that came, that Levinson, as I mentioned earlier, is saying, like, King's getting fleeced. Like, you should be—I think he writes to them or says to King, like, you know, these people should be ashamed of themselves. This lawsuit has to do with King not doing a great job of record-keeping of the donations coming in from the MIA. Oh, wait. Yeah. Th- that's what it has to do with. It's like—sorry. Um, it's about him not doing good record-keeping. Luckily— he took like excellent notes in his journal, which is going to come to really help out. On May 16th, King goes to court on income tax charges and a segregated courtroom, which of course his lawyers oppose. The next day, 
1,500 students in Atlanta marched from the west side of the Capitol through downtown to, com- to com- commemorate Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and I like this little quote he has from a white lady that was in the newspaper where a white, an older white woman just matter-of-factly says, I didn't know there were so many <laughs> blank N-words in college. I want to pause here because I think this highlights what you or I said on a previous podcast that it's like inconceivable for people to not be racist um, and not just carry around this bigotry and not to get too theoretical. But going back to the social gospel and Reinhold Niebuhr and Rauschenbusch and the support for the social gospel theory, it kind of makes me think about... If we could only bring this enlightenment and show people like the errors of their way and expose them to this, um, that there is some truth in this experience and showing people that, that it could maybe ameliorate some of this bigotry and help lead us to a more free and just society. And it's not just internal sin. That said... I did get a Reinhold Niebuhr book out of the library and I was peeking through it. And I did kind of like what he said about racism. And um, he comments on like seven of the more liberal churches were not more uh, um, integrated. And it was actually some of the more orthodox churches that were. And that there's just something thorny about identity and race that is going to take some time. And he attributes it to sin or something like that. Um, uh, But he's clearly a smart guy and and branch did a pretty good job of like reviewing him that that comment also uh made me sit up and pay attention um because it's it's ridiculous and offensive but there's another and i I like your take on it but there's another way to look at it which is that of course this woman is is shocked uh or or surprised that so Mm -hmm. many black people could be students but it's also the case that this is in the context of a of a of this country at a particular time when there are more humans Mm -hmm. who are students than ever yes like if you think about it the young black people just like young white people who are in college in 1960 these are these are the baby boomers yeah this is these are the children of the generation that came back from the war, post-war war, universities being built in 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 a exactly in in a uh, a country in which there's an investment in education of all kinds. And just on a on a personal note, right? So my father was one of the first people um, in his generation to to go to university in the U.S. Right? My mother, who grew up. At, a little bit earlier, but in in Britain didn't have that opportunity, hmm. and it was extremely unusual for people of working class or middle middle class background to, to go to college in, in Britain until several decades later. The only other country in the world with so many students in the early sixties was the Soviet Union for different, somewhat different reasons. But the U.S. is really remarkable in the sense of having this big class of people all going to these schools at the same time and it also goes back to the point you made earlier about why nashville Mm -hmm. i think because you have these people coming together young people with potential are all in the same place and of course as the 60s goes on this becomes important across the whole society um 
Yeah, I mean, I'm the first person to go to college in my family, which is like crazy to me because it's like 2000 and we're in the 2020s. Uh, but Branch, okay, so let's go back. Branch is doing his history thing. He's commenting that everywhere in the country was not seeing this, uh, you know, these struggles. It wasn't on the front page as much. There was wildcat strikes, coal mines. There was stuff about the birth control pill. Here's my little joke. There was the 1960s World Series where the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the New York Yankees. Game seven, the best uh, sporting event of all time. Home run hit by yeah, Mazurowski, like I said. Um, in South, South Africa, there was the Sharperville... Uh, demonstration where the police killed 69 people, shocking the world. Again, this was like a racial justice fight. And he's well, there, there's a footnote there that AJ Musty is, is concerned that uh, the Sharpeville massacre and the reaction to it will push white supremacists, will push the anti colonial struggle in a violent direction. And he was spot on about that. That's exactly what happened, not not just in, in South Africa, yeah. but in, in, in Portuguese colonies and other places as, as well. It was this incredible uh, polarizing. Yeah, we, let, let's, I didn't write up anything on A.J. Musty, but I do feel he is an extremely important uh, bridge to a better world. In the, in, he's older. He helps foster some of these organizations. He's a white Presbyterian peace guy. Um, and he's, if it, he's a really idiosyncratic figure, but he, he also is a is a bridge between uh, Protestant idealist pacifism and like labor um, stuff, right? Exactly, Christian socialism and labor organizing. And why I like him and just reference him is because I think it's people like him that are important. Because I kind of think we're like that in dark times in a way that is like kind of carrying the torch when there might not be a giant movement, but he is there as someone to, you know, what would you say, uh, chaperone or lean on and educate and fund and all that stuff. I mean, he is like in a sea of horror in the what nineteen teens and twenties and thirties. He's like got essentially. 2000 you know 1990 or 2000 ethos <laughs> he's like the only non-racist person um anyways and he's not you know a communist or anything like that so okay so let's get back to some bombing black nashville civil rights lawyer La- uh, alexander luby his home is bombed it's huge bomb in downtown it like blows out some windows this actually sort of unites the city a little bit um, there's a big demonstration on City Hall the next day, and this is, again, got to go back to Eyes on the Prize. There's a great video of Diane Nash challenging the Mayor West point blank on TV, saying, like, do you support ending desegregation? He says, like, well, I desegregated something earlier. And he's like, well, what about right now? And he's like, well, yes, I do. I mean, and she is just, like, fearless on this video. I mean, again... I get very nervous very easily sometimes when put on the spot. She just does it. And she's so badass. And again, this is where I think this guy is different because he's he's a moderate, I guess. I mean, I don't know if he's a liberal, but he's not Patterson. When faced, I mean, he could have faced some, some severe backlash here, but he just said in his heart, this guy's like, you know what? No. Um, I, yeah, segregation is dumb. Let's, let's. Well, and it's, it's once again a brilliant uh, initiative by Nash because – and we saw this before to some degree around the, the Montgomery bus boycott, but it's even more true here. The The businesses don't want to be the first to right. They don't want to look great. And they also don't want to be in violation of the law. Meanwhile, the elected official 
uh, doesn't want to look like a crusader for black rights. Doesn't want to look like a crusader, but, but but he also wants to sort of defer to the business community, and so she kind of forces the question and creates an environment in which it's possible for people without courage uh, to kind of fall in line with, right. with the the imperative that they've created. They create the, I think what Dr. King would call the creative tension. Right, right. And then she leads right she through the She just does it. it. Lawson ends up not getting the SCLC job because Roy Wilkins vetoes it. Roy Wilkins is really coming across as not great in this book. He's, again, the head of the director of the NAACP. He's saying he would not deal with SCLC if Moore and Lawson joined. Um, because he's aware that that Lawson was uh, criticizing in, criticizing the, the 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 NAACP. I mean, w- w- you're right that um, Wilkins comes across as a fairly controlling and authoritarian figure yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about him before. Yeah. He's very much shaped by the organization that he has and the experience that he has, and he's. Uh, he, he's not the only figure in this book who's trying to keep his arms around mm-hmm. um, his operation and his organization and uh, throwing elbows. Yeah, but I mean, saying like, to, I would to, not to deal with that, that crazy. So Moore goes to the Congo. He's like, okay, I'm done. Lawson's depressed about it, but he, he powers on. Um, back to Walker, another kind of authoritarian figure. He's fully on the board. Um, Branch says the chief drawback of Walker was Walker himself. He had brains and zeal, but he had an idea of military authority that was certain to clash with the SELC. But this is where I'm going to give Walker some credit because I think they kind of needed that. Yes. Because they're just doing these grandiose speeches and backslapping and clapping. In some ways, Walker was what they needed. And I think actually Baker was doing the same type of thing. She was like a soldier just marching forward and getting things done. But for whatever the reason, if Walker's the guy, as we talked about. Um, I think sexism is the reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I said for some reason. We know the reason. Sexism. Everyone hates women. Except this show. Um, So Walker's kind of a jerk and Walker also being... Oh, didn't like him talking to Stanley Levinson and Rustin. Oh, this is where I hate him because these are like the two saints of American history of the of the many that we talk about. He didn't like it. Uh, Walker wanted to consolidate power behind King. Um, and he didn't want um, any other leaders. In steps Bob Moses. Well, let, let, let's just pause for a sure. moment. I, it, it's also totally understandable. Right, we're trying to build an organization. It's called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We're trying to pull these pastors together. Should we organize the finances and the strategy, or should it be outsourced to a Jewish ex-communist car dealer and a black gay ex-communist in New York in New York City talking to celebrities and controlling the money and strategy and writing the memos? Well, you want me to be the executive director? Maybe you should trust me, right? And so. King, I think, by putting them all in the room together, ends up getting what he needs, which is Walker to to take leadership and bring his energy and zeal and drive without um, Rustin and and, and Levinson uh, packing up and leaving. So this chapter sort of ends with uh, Bob Moses, which we were going to get into more of next chapter. He's a high school teacher. 
um, who's at odds with his namesake, as uh, uh, Branch says. He's spiritual but not religious, um, political but not ambitious. So we have this looming tax thing going on with King where he's going to go to jail if he doesn't win. Um, and it's up to a white jury. So how do you think this is going to go? Probably going to lose. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to mention um, Harry Belafonte, celebrity, singer, actor, engineers a meeting with MLK, with uh, John Kennedy that we will get to next. Um, at this point, Kennedy just sees King as a guy who led like a bus boycott um, and is in trouble for tax charges. So he's like, I don't know, like he's just a little aloof. So at the end of the chapter, wonders of wonders, miracles of miracles, King is found not guilty. And I don't know if it's because white people hate the IRS or or really it's the detailed uh, journals is what Branch says that like they are so detailed that it's like within dollars of him accounting for what he spent and the money coming in that kind of saves him. Saves him. Also, he had five lawyers. Like he had all these different lawyers, which we didn't really get into that much. But well, and and as Branch tells the tale, it's this one particular attorney who has who's young, but he has this background in in finance. I think it's recommended by Levinson, who ends up doing what Daddy King's accountant banker buddy cannot do, and what the other lawyers who are all charging fees uh, cannot do, which is put together the case that proves um, that King was the most honest person right. anyone had ever met. <laughs> right, right, right. That, that they're all shocked. They're all stunned <laughs> that, that their client is actually uh, perfectly innocent. I mean, I was stunned because I was like, wait, is this when he... I didn't know this history. I was like, wow, he actually gets off. This is pretty cool. Uh, but he will be going back to jail eventually. Don't worry. And that's going to conclude Chapter 7. Please stick around for, unfortunately more politics (laughs) in chapters eight and nine, which we will try to do in one show next episode. All right. Thank you for listening.